Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all you guys out here. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to preach today. Um, I, what I love about preaching and what I love about just sermons and being able to listen to them is that it's a time for us to open up God's Word. And what's crazy about this is it's not just a textbook. It's not just some historical document that we're, we're opening up. It's God's Word. Um, and so I think sometimes we forget what we've been blessed with. God has revealed himself to us. Us. God has revealed himself to us. The Bible is the divine revelation of who God is, and we have it right in front of us today, this morning. And we have this text that's thousands of years old. It's crazy to wrap our mind around that. It's been around for thousands of years, but it is and it always has been and it always will be living and active, this word of God. Listen to what Hebrews 4.12 says. It says, For the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. By reading God's word, by reading his revelation of himself to us, to humanity, we do more than just learn about God. We meet God in this. We meet God. And when we meet God through his word, it impacts us personally. Like Hebrews 4.12 says, right? It's splitting joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It's getting down to the heart. So have you ever had those times when you're listening to or reading God's word and it hits you like a freight train just out of nowhere? It actually cuts all the way down and it just knocks your socks off? For me, one portion of God's word that will always cut to my heart is Psalm 139. And that's where we're going to be reading from today. So go ahead and open up to Psalm 139. And as you're opening up to there, I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive into it. God, I thank you so much for this day, that we can come together in this place to worship you, to sing praises to you, to reflect on how gracious and merciful you've been to us, Lord, that you have given us new life through you. God, I thank you so much that we can just bask in that today. God, I pray is that we open your word that we, our hearts and our minds and our ears can be open to it, Lord, that you can speak to us what you want to speak, um, and that ultimately we can just come to know you and through that know ourselves and just dedicate our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Psalm 139, I'm going to read through the whole thing, all 24 verses, and then We'll start breaking it down from there. So, starting in verse 1, it says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. So we see that Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm, right? Like awesome language, awesome descriptions of everything. And it's actually considered by many to be one of the greatest psalms in the entire Psalter. For not only is it incredibly personal, as David's reflecting on his life, it's also highly theological, as we see major character traits of God being portrayed through David's life. And as David reflects on his knowledge and relationship with God, we see that he has had an, it has had an impact on him personally. I mean, just look at the final two verses of the psalm. He asks God to search him, to test him, and to lead him in the everlasting way. And I don't know about you guys, but we don't typically ask our closest friends to continually search us out and know our hearts, to test us in our concerns, and to see if there's any offensive way in us. This is not a natural thing for a human being to ask for. We would rather answer only to ourselves. We don't want to expose ourselves to everyone and all of our flaws and our sins and our mistakes because oh, I don't want that to be out there, right? But David... Knowing God, who knows him, David wants him to look into the deepest parts of himself and to lead him in the everlasting way. And this is not an easy prayer. This is one of those scary prayers where you're not really sure what you're going to get out of it once you pray this prayer to God of search me and test me and lead me in the everlasting way. We're laying it all on the table before God. So what led David to pray this prayer? And I think it's this. Knowing God impacts us personally. Knowing God, who knows us, it impacts us personally. So how does knowing God impact us personally? We will go to our first point, which is God knows more than just facts about me. He knows me. God knows more than just facts about me. He knows me. We'll read in verses 1 through 6. It says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. 
You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. So these verses are describing the intimate way that God knows each of us completely. There's nothing that he doesn't know about you, that he doesn't know about me. He has searched us and knows us. And verse 1 by itself, whenever I open up to this psalm, it, it just hits me. Like, just that one verse alone, you have searched me and known me, that, oh man, that just hits me right to the core. Like, God knows me. And to just wrap our mind around that and how that's such good news that God knows us and see that he cares for us in his creation, it's mind-blowing. He has searched us out and knows our every action, our every location, our every thought, our every word, and our every motive. There is nothing that God does not know about me, doesn't know about you, doesn't know about us. David says in the end of verse 4, he says, you know all about it, Lord. He just says it. You know everything. You know all about it. And so the big theological word that describes God as knowing everything is omniscient. God is omniscient, and that simply just means God is all-knowing. And so we see this omniscient God. He's not indifferent or unaware of who we are. He knows us entirely, and he encircles us and lays his hand on us, as it says in verse 5. He knows what's best for us, and he does all that he can to guide us that way all that he can to guide us that way. God fully knows us, and he loves us still. If there's anyone who could make an argument for not loving us, for not loving me, for not loving you, it's God, because he knows our every thought, motive, and action. He knows the worst things about us. And yet we see here in the psalm, and ultimately in Christ's death and resurrection, that God loves us more than we can ever imagine. Romans 5.8 says, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. God knows how sinful we are, but he still lavishes us with grace and mercy because he is a loving and compassionate God. So when we learn how completely God knows us, how fully God knows us, how do we respond Because as we come to know God, we can't not be personally impacted by him and who he is. When you learn that God knows everything there is to know about you, and that he's placed his hand on you, that affects you. That affects you. So are we responding like David and declaring how extraordinary this knowledge is, that it's beyond us, as he says in verse 6? Or maybe we're feeling a bit uncomfortable, uncomfortable, or even sort of threatened that God, who knows all, knows me and everything about me in the depths of my soul. As we come to know God, we learn he is the only one we can put our trust and hope and faith in. For not only is he all-knowing, he is always present. Not only is he all-knowing, he's always present, which takes us to point two. That God is always with us. God is always with us. Look at um, verses 7 through 12 in Psalm 139. David says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? 
where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or I settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. We see that with God. There's no escape route. There's no way out. He is with us constantly. In these verses, we see David's thinking in regard to the previous verses where he's saying God knows everything about us. And so then he poses this thought of trying to escape from God who knows us so well. One commentator put it this way. If God knows so much about us, perhaps the wisest thing to do is to run away and hide. But then concludes with, but all escape routes are futile. There's no point. Because it's not comfortable when someone knows all about you and you had no say in it. You didn't reveal it to them. God knew it before you were even out of your mother's womb. He knew everything about you. So it makes sense to see David transitioning to this point because we're trying to get like, okay, maybe there's a way out of this, you know? So David thinks of all the possible ways to avoid God and still concludes that God will always be present in our lives, whether we like it or not. This, this uh, takes us to our like, second big theological word, that God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. He is all present. He is everywhere. There's no escaping him. And so David breaks it down. He says, whether we go up to heaven, where we know God obviously resides, David knew that, but he's using that to contrast that with going down to Sheol, down to the grave, down to death, you can't escape God and death. He will be there. And then he says, whether we go all the way east to the rising sun or all the way west to the sea and beyond, and they had no idea what was beyond the sea. They just thought, knew it was the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe there were some foreign nations out there or something like that. Maybe God wasn't there in those foreign nations. But yet David says, God will still be there holding and leading us. He will still be there. So David has one last idea. He says, Maybe we, could, maybe we could hide in darkness so God could not see us. God could not see David. But we see that even darkness cannot help us escape from God, as it says, for the night shines like the day to him. Day and night are alike. And we know that it's human nature to try and hide in darkness when we sin because we're feeling that get, guilt, we're feeling that regret, that remorse, that shame of our sin, so that we can try and escape God's presence, because we don't want to have to come and stand before God who already knows that we messed up, and we're like, oh. we want to run away from that. We want to hide in that. And this has been true since the beginning. Turn to Genesis 3 with me. Keep like a bookmark or a finger in one, Psalm 139, because we'll come back to that. That's where we'll stay for the rest of the time. But turn to Genesis chapter 3 with me real quick. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 8 through 10 first in Genesis 3. And to give some context of what's going on in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were in the garden with God, and he had told them not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in chapter 3, we see that they do just that. They go in direct disobedience of God. And so when they do that, um, their eyes are open, and they see that they're naked, and they feel ashamed, and that they know they've sinned, and that they're in trouble. 
And so we come to verse 8, and it says, Then the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And so what do they do? And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And when Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, he's implying that he had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he knew that he was naked now. He's like admitting that he messed up. And so what does he say? He says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I hid. Even in the very beginning, our ancestors thought hiding from God was possible. But we see that's not the case. And in spite of Adam and Eve's sin, in spite of them taking from that tree that God told them not to eat from, we also see God caring for them. We see what David said in verse 10 of the psalm coming into action in the context of trying to run from God. Adam and Eve are trying to hide from God. And David says in verse 10 that even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. Now look at verses 21 through 23 in Genesis 3. In between, what happens is that God gives them consequences to their sin. He um, curses them. He curses the land. He makes childbearing hard for women. Uh, But then, once he's gotten through that, it says in verse 21, The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife. And he, God, he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, She must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So God had punished Adam and Eve. He had given them consequences, just like a parent gives consequences to their children when they disobey. But he didn't destroy them. God could have started all over with humanity. God is God. He can do what he wants. But we see that's not who God is in this. God instead cares for Adam and Eve. He gives them garments and then leads them in the best way he in the way he knew best, which was to remove them from the garden. God knew it wasn't good for them to be there anymore. So in love, he removes them and lets them live in a different land. Even in darkness, God will always be there. There is no dark time in your life that God will not be there for you for darkness is as light to him. David himself says in Psalm 23, verse 4, even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, even when I go through the worst, scariest, darkest times in my life, I fear no danger. For you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So we see in both Genesis and David's Psalms that God loves his people and wants to walk with us and guide us. Because he has a plan for each and every one of us. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. He has a plan for everyone. And this takes us to our third point, which is that God made you for a purpose. God made you for a purpose. Go ahead and flip back to Psalm 139. And we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. David says, For it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. So from the time of conception, God not only saw us, but took part in forming us into the men and women he planned for us to be. This leads us to our third big theological word, that God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. God is planning for us, even before we are out of our mother's womb, what our days are going to be, because God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. And this takes us to a quick side note. Um, If you've ever wondered what or when the life begins for humanity, this passage that I just read is a great one to look over and study. Now, I don't have time to go over this topic of when human life begins and how it relates to abortion and all that topic because it could easily cover one sermon, if not many sermons in itself. This passage gives us a lot of insight into, what, into when human life begins and to, as to what God says about human life. So, David makes it clear that God played a personal role in forming him in his mother's womb. When no one else could see or know David, God not only sees and knows David, but is personally developing him. David says, you created my inward parts. You knit me together. Your works are wonderful. God is personally forming David, knitting David together in the way that he designed, because he has a plan for him. God was active in all of our lives from the beginning. Because we are all remarkably and wonderfully made by God. And not only was God active in the beginning of our lives, he is concerned and involved in every part of our life. Every part. Verse 16 says, All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. So that means all of our days, whether they're many or they're few, they're determined by God. And we see that God is not some far-off being that's irrelevant to our lives. Rather, we see he's the most dominant factor in our lives because he's the one who has planned out our days. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his creation, we are God's creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. We should walk in them. So when we fully surrender to God, putting our faith in Christ and his work, not in our own good deeds or anyone else, Christ alone, we can live the life that God planned planned for us. And when we see how great God is through his power, through his presence, and through his knowledge, we see why we should desire him as Lord over our lives, over all of our lives. And this leads to the final point, that when we know God, we ought to side with him. When we know God, we ought to side with him. We're going to read verses 19 through 24 now. It says, God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. 
Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So verses 19 through 22 sort of seem to come out of nowhere, come out of left field, right? After we just read all this beautiful, personal, intimate stuff that David's talking about with God, it's sort of like a, whoa, David, what's going on, man? Um, But David, he's not having this sudden, uncontrolled burst of anger and hatred. Rather, when we take into account what David's already stated in the previous verses of this psalm, that we cannot deceive God because he's all-knowing, that we cannot escape God because he's all-present, and that we cannot ignore God because he's all-powerful, doesn't it make sense that we should obey him? The obvious answer is yes, he's God. Yet there are those who prefer to oppose him, to oppose God. So we see David responding from his reflection of who God is in these previous verses and is now applying that to those who hate God. This isn't David expressing some personal vengeance on some guy who, like, backstabbed him a week ago. His prayer is that God would act justly in dealing with those who oppose him. David says, your enemies, those who hate you, those who rebel against you, these are enemies of God. And so this, por- this portion of Psalm 139 and other psalms, they're known as imprecatory psalms, meaning they call down divine curses and express hatred for the enemies of God. And now, this may seem like, sort of like, this is just an Old Testament thing, and that is not the case. Imprecations are found in the New Testament too. Paul says them, and Jesus actually likes to quote the imprecatory psalms at times. So we see it's important to remember these imprecations are nothing more than human prayers based on divine promises. God is judge, and he judges righteously because he's all-knowing, he's ever-present, and he's all-powerful. He's the one, he's the only one that could be judged, right? He is a righteous judge. So Paul, the apostle, says in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, But you, why do you criticize your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal or the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. So David isn't pulling these ideas, these curses out of thin air. He's simply praying for God's judgment, which is exactly what we do when we pray, your kingdom come. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but when you you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're asking God to judge those who are against him and his kingdom. We also saw throughout this psalm, how God is constantly trying to love and guide each person in the best way, right? God's hand is laid on us. He's forming us and knitting us together in our mother's womb. He's trying to lead us and guide us and hem us in and encircle us. God is constantly trying to love and guide each person in the best way, meaning that David's hatred is toward those whom God has pursued in love for a long time, and yet they still want nothing to do with God. They choose to oppose God. 
So in light of all of that, we see that David is taking God's side. One commentator says that David's not motivated by malice or bitterness or self-centered resentment, but he is most certainly jealous for God's name and firmly at odds with those who are God's enemies. So this begs the question of our stance on God's enemies. Could our reaction to the imprecatory Psalms, what David said here in these verses, be traced to the fact that we love people in their favor more than we love God in his? I remember when I first read through that passage, and I was like, whoa, dang, like this is intense. But then you start thinking about it, right? You start breaking it down and seeing like, these are people who oppose God. These are people who do not want anything to do with God. And so we need to ask ourselves, where's our stance? Do we fear God or do we fear men more? Whose favor do we want more? David's declaring his wholehearted allegiance to God, and we should too, especially in light of all that David said about God, how he knows us and loves us and cares for us. He's formed us and knitted us together. And so this takes us right to the final two verses of the psalm, verses 23 and 24, that say, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in the everlasting way. Get rid of any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. When our allegiance is with God, when we side with him, we're led to pray prayers like David did. We're led to pray prayers that are dangerous, that seek out the deepest, darkest parts of our soul, because in the end, we side with God. That's who we want leading us and guiding us. When we know God is a relational God who's intimately involved in each of our lives, we're led to trust him with everything. I mean, just look at how well God knows us. He's the one, the only one we could ever trust with everything. So this means that we ask him to search our hearts, to test us and see if there's any offensive way in us, so that he may lead us in the everlasting way. This prayer is one of surrender, total and complete surrender. We're coming to God and saying, you know me better than I do. Search me and lead me. You have created me and planned my days, Lead me in the way you see fit. I'm done leading my own life, God. I want you to take over and lead me. I mentioned at the beginning um, that this psalm was always a place I could go to and be cut to the heart by God and his word. Um, and I first read this psalm when I was a sophomore in college at Cal Poly. I had come across it because at the time I was trying to figure out what it meant to be a genuine follower of Christ. And I was wrestling with that. I was trying to think of that in terms of like how I've seen other Christians and how they live their lives. And ultimately, I just wanted to do it the way God wanted to do it. I wanted to be a genuine follower of Christ. And so I'd been going through a devotional, and it had scripture memory as a part of it. And one of those scriptures I had to memorize was Psalm 139, 23, and 24. And so when I came upon this psalm, and I learned who God is, and that, that had a deep personal impact on my life. And I began to see that God was a personal God who loved me and had a plan for my life. 
And so then, of course, I start asking the question, well, uh, what is your plan for my life, God? What do you got going on? Um, and so with this question, and I was also reading this book called Radical by David Platt, it made it clear to me that the Christian life is one of total surrender to God. Total surrender to God. And in this total surrender to God, we begin to discover what God has planned for us. Only in total surrender to God can we begin to discover what God has planned for us. And now I'm not saying that I had some crazy vision as to what the rest of my life looked like as soon as I totally surrendered my life to God. That's not what happened. But because I had laid it all down before him, God began leading me step by step on the path to where I am today, to being up here preaching. I never thought I would preach. I was the most quiet, introverted kid ever. Ask my mom. She's sitting right there. I would never preach. I would never come up here. And yet this is where God led me to today. So I can say that I could have never imagined being where I am now and how joyous it is, how joyous it is to live the life that God planned for me. When we take all that David covered in this psalm into account, it's obvious to see that life without God is futile. True life, life to the fullest, life in full surrender, is meant to be lived with God. We see this in the beginning with creation, all the way through to the end with restoration. God wants to be in relationship with us. This is because God is a personal God who created us to be in relationship with him. So as we come to know God and learn that he knows us personally, how he is always with us and how he took part in creating us and planning out our days, we can't help but respond to that. And hopefully our response is running to him, running to God, running to our Father, and not from him. Because God is good. God is so good and loves us more than we could ever imagine. And so, as we close up, we're not going to do an invitation song today. Instead, you guys uh, just can remain seated. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to respond to God's word this morning by praying David's prayer at the end here. Asking God to search us and know our hearts so that he may lead us in the everlasting way. So I'll give you some time to pray to yourselves, and then I'll close for us. Let's go ahead and pray.